Welcome to 2023 on First on Film and Entertainment. My name's Alex First. Joining me for the first show of the year, Greg King. Well, happiest of New Year's to you, sir. And you too, Alex, and nice to talk to you again. And Peter Krauss, a very bold welcome to a new year. How are you? Uh, very good. Happy New Year to you and to Greg and to everyone. Fantastic, boys. Well, look, this is going to be a special show because we're going to be talking about four movies and hopefully also a show that I've spoken about but a new person in a pivotal role. So there's my little tease for the for the morning. Having said that, I want to talk about a – well, we, we talked about Boxing Day movies last week. We've got New Year's Day movies this year and we've got a – well, let's start with – Let's start with one of the shows that we alluded to, and then we'll we'll work our way up to a Tom Hanks film, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I wanted to start there. Now, Greg, you've seen one of the two family films. Is this the one you've seen, or was no, the other I've one? Seen, I've seen Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile. All right. Well, we'll get to Lyle in a moment. Puss okay, in I'll Boots. I'll just hang around and wait a while. You, you yeah. can do that. Well, you, I mean, you're familiar, I presume, with the nursery story, the, the fairy tale Puss in Boots, so you can... You can comment as you wish. Now, well, it came, out, came in one of the Shrek movies first, didn't it? Very good. Well, it's a good starting point. First appeared in Shrek 2, actually. It was back in 2004. Hard to believe that nearly 20 years have gone by, but there we go. And, of course, Puss in Boots is the voice of Antonio Banderas. This movie, The Last Wish, is PG-rated and runs for 102 minutes. So after Puss in Boots showed up in Shrek 2... Came again, or he came again, a couple of other Shrek sequels, and then there was a standalone movie, which I believe was in around about 2011. And now the swashbuckling adventurer returns. And well, I mean, this is always the case, facing his biggest challenge yet, of course, of course he is. Uh, and th that is losing his sense of fearlessness. And the, the cat's death defying great escapes, well, they've become legendary but they've come at a cost. Now, uh, Greg, how many lives does a cat have? Nine. Run very like, good. Run like this in football team. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is a very very positive start to the year. Uh, you, are, you wishing us, are you wishing us to win a flag this year, Gregory? No. No, no, that, that's fine if you are. I mean, we'll I'm have like, you on board. You can ditch the white stripe. Sorry? Pardon me? You can ditch the white stripe. You know, come across to us and I'm we'll sorry have you. I mention it now. No, I'm not sorry you mentioned it at all. But anyway, Cat's got nine lives and unbeknownst to him, Puss has actually used up eight of them. And he's then visited by the demonic red-eyed big bad wolf. Of course he is, the voice of Wagnamura. And the big bad wolf is out to kill Puss off for good. And he's far more powerful than Puss in Boots. And he leaves the latter shaking. Well, in his boots, pun fully intended. And his one hope of redemption is to undertake an epic journey into the Black Forest. I'm not talking about a mud cake here. The, the, the Black Forest, as in trees, to find the mythical wishing star and restore his lost lives. But that will not be an easy feat. In fact, far from it. Puss is going to have to learn to humble himself, and he's not very good at that, and he has to ask for help from his former partner, who's named Kitty Softpaws. That's vocalised by Salma Hayek Pino. 
the pair will be aided in their cause by a relently, relentlessly cheerful orphan dog named Perito. Harvey Gulen plays Perito. And this is a dog always looking on the bright side of life. Was that Monty Python? Anyway, yes. Uh, the, the, the three of them face considerable obstacles in the form of other cartoon characters also chasing the Holy Grail. I speak of Goldie as in Locks, Florence Pugh, and the Three Bears crime family. Yes, that's what they've resorted to. Mama Bear, Olivia Coleman, Papa Bear, Ray Winston, and Baby Bear, Samson K.O. That is not to forget evil incarnate Jack Horner, John Malahi, or Malayne, rather than Malahi. Also featuring in Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, is Puss's doctor, that's the voice of Anthony Mendez, and he's the one who delivers the news to Puss that, unfortunately, he's on very shaky ground. He's only got the one life left, and he directs him to visit Mama Luna, the voice of Divine Joy Randolph, who happens to have a soft spot for cats, and that's where Puss befriends Perito and the grand adventure begins. So that's Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, Peter Kraus. Uh, it is colourful. It's creative. It's quite complex in navigating the various heightened cartoon characters. I warmed to most of them. I, I just had a question mark about Jack Horner. Look, I don't think Jack Horner is the most popular of fairy tale characters. Little Jack Horner, the original English nursery rhyme, written with greed in mind, so that, that sort of makes sense. Here he's not Little Jack Horner but Big Jack Horner. What did you think of that choice? Look, I didn't mind that because I, I think the animation gives a nod to adults uh, who will appreciate some of the uh, the storyline, uh, as well as the children, of course, who will like the way the uh, uh, Puss in Boots story develops and the, the search for his final life. <laughs> Look, uh, it, I really liked the, this film and it showed especially the evolution of animation and how um, since 2011, since the last Puss in Boots film, uh, this one looks even better and, uh, and just has a, a, a stronger feel to it in terms of story as well. So um, what I found most interesting was the start of the film with the new DreamWorks logo. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that was, yeah, that was used for the first time for this uh, Puss in Boots. And it, and it, it just was, is a nicely developed uh, logo overall. Look, it's a nice story. It's well developed. I think uh, adults will like it. Kids will like it too, although it's a little scary at times. It is. Um, yeah, and that's why it's rated PG. By the way, I, yeah. I, I, I went along with uh, an adult in, in their 30s and three children aged seven, five, and three. So I can honestly say mm, they shifted around a little bit. They, they, I can't say it, it totally sustained them for the, the running time, which is interesting, 102 minutes. And they also, pardon me, came along to Lyle Crocodile. So I'll be able to compare and contrast that. And I, I can say to you now that they were sustained by Lyle Crocodile, which was a combination of animation and uh, and live action. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's Again, that, that's just one one lot. They they were siblings, but I'm I'm not sure what it says other than uh, perhaps perhaps um, ninety minutes rather than an hour, 102. I mean, I I'm not sure whether that would have made a difference that big a difference. But um, I, I, look, I I think it's Lyle Crocodile's G rated. This is PG rated. So 
maybe maybe this has got you know more appeal to an older subset of, of uh, children. Uh, that that could be it. I, look, I found I really warmed to Goldie and the Three Bears and the characterization of the big bad wolf, scary that he is. I mean, he is the red eyes and so forth. My familiarity with those th- those characters, though, in their traditional form, no doubt served me well, and I, I dare say the same will be the case with the Littleys who are going to see this movie. I I did think Jack Horner, Big Jack Horner, was an interesting choice as the voice of Gluttony. I, I'm just not so sure how popular or well known Horner is to the contemporary generation. I I mean I, I haven't asked a a five year old or three or seven year old. Uh, I. I I just don't uh, amongst. I would have thought Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and uh, I don't know some of the other more popular animated characters and fairy stories w- would be better known. That that's the only. Uh, that, I, I just raised the question. That's not to say you can't introduce new or less familiar characters into a franchise. Only that I just don't think Horner s- seemed to resonate as much as the others did in this particular movie. I, I did enjoy the casting of Jiminy Cricket, for example, Kevin McCann as Horner's moral guardian, right? Who who was um, on a slippery slope, wasn't he? Yes. In fact, the, the voice casting, um, as is usually the case with these sorts of animations, is top notch. And uh, it was so nice to hear the resonant voices of the various characters. And look, I don't think it matters that uh, there are some characters in the particular animation that may not be as familiar or as uh, well known, because uh, it's all about the story. Uh, that's the bottom yeah. line for me. And I like the story and I like the air of melancholy that was also uh, that also inhabited the story, especially the way that the film concluded. So I, I think it works for both uh, children and adults. Mm, well, look, I, I appreciated the setup and the general trajectory. I, I certainly did. I did feel a little bit laboured and repetitive in, in navigating the challenges in the Black Forest. That's where I think they may have saved a, a little bit of time. Uh, and so that trimming that I was suggesting, but but I I, re, I believe like you, it's fun, it's fanciful throughout, it's certainly colourful. Uh, what what would you score Puss in Boots: The Last Wish out of ten? Um, as it was somewhat influenced by the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which I found very <laughs> <Right>. interesting, <laughs> uh, I give it seven out of ten. It's quite enjoyable. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I've got a similar sentiment. I, I think seven's an accurate figure for it. So. Uh, Hey, Peter, what's going on? We agree for the start of the new year. We must be we must be turning over a new leaf with a new resolution. <laughs> well, there must be some fairy, fairy dust being sprinkled. Greg, you can't have Peter and I agreeing, can you? Why not? Uh, all is well in the world, that means. Uh, it does. <laughs> on me. I, I'll be interested to see how long that lasts, I might say. But, not uh, long. You are... <laughs> So let's go from Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, to Lyle, Lyle, a Crocodile, G-rated 106 minutes, this one, and it is fanciful fun for the whole family. It's lightweight, fair. I reckon it'll put a smile on the faces of Littleys, their parents and grandparents. It is live action, CGI. It's a musical comedy, bit of colour and song and silliness to, to soften even the hardest of hearts. You've got a character called Hector P. Valenti, played by Javier Bardem. He's a wannabe big crowd entertainer, uh, the operative word being wannabe. He's a New York song and dance man with a great deal of front whose routines, well, they haven't exactly resonated. And he's rejected for the umpteenth time by a television talent show, and he's 
really told to kick things up a gear. So he, he basically leaves disappointed, but he, he's this colourful character and he's a schemer. So he spots and he walks into an exotic animal's pet shop and there in a cage he finds this cute and really, really is very cute green infant singing crocodile. Very cute little thing, the voice of Sean Mendes. So he's got immediately stars in his eyes thinking, wow, this is exactly what I'm after. So Valenti takes the croc, whom he names Lyle, takes him home and begins working with him, preparing him for his stage debut. Only when that big moment comes, Lyle freezes. Hmm. So the critter gets this massive case of stage fright in front of a full house. That is a real problem. And as a result, Valenti, who has put his house on the line to fund this show, is forced to move out. But Lyle stays with instructions to play dead if anyone spots him. In time, an uptight family, the Prims, move in. Young son Josh, played by Winslow Fegley, fears the big city and the dangers that big city life poses. He's regarded as a little weird. And his mother, Constance Wu, is a worrywart, while his father, Scott McNary, is a straight-laced teacher. So while Josh jumps at shadows, imagine his shock when he chances upon Lyle in the attic after hearing music emanating from a grate in the ceiling. Suddenly, his life changes forever, for the better. Mm. So Lyle becomes this constant in his life, and Josh, his mum and dad, become bolder as a result of Lyle's presence. But trouble lurks in the form of a recalcitrant neighbour. So it's not just you, Peter, who are recalcitrant. Thank you. There we go. A pleasure. Um, in fact, your, your name isn't as severe as, as this recalcitrant neighbour, whose name is Mr Grumps. We can call you that if you wish. Mr Grumps <laughs> is played by Brett Gelman, and he dotes on his pet cat. Do you have a pet cat, Peter? Uh, no. Would you like to get a pet cat, Peter? Definitely no. <laughs> what have you got against cats? There's a theme running through the movies we're talking about tonight. There's cats in all of them. That's true. Yeah, indeed. And what have you, and now, Greg, have you had a cat? Yes, I have. And and there you go. So you're you're are you a cat person or a dog person or both? A cat person. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter, are you an anything person? Uh, uh, no, I'm not. I'm actually an android. But uh, Andrew Lloyd, Andrew Lloyd Webber's cats is probably more exciting. Oh, oh no! Oh, very. <laughs> these, these are Greg jokes. What are you muscling in on his territory? <laughs> oh, okay. So let's get back to Mr. Grumps, Brett Gelman, uh, and and he's he has he dotes on his pet cat, but he's got an antipathy towards fellow humans, and you've also got the self-centered. Valenti re-entering the picture, ensuring more hijinks. So that is Lyle Lyle Crocodile in terms of storyline, screenplay by Will Davies, based on a book series by Bernard Weber, and it I reckon it's perfectly pitched at young families, Greg, this one. Lyle Lyle Crocodile, what about you? Yeah, and the songs are written by the same guys who wrote the songs for The Greatest Showman, the Hugh Jackman film, and a couple of them are quite mm -hmm. catchy, a couple of them are quite catchy tunes there. Um yeah, I, I enjoyed this film. I thought it was quite entertaining at times. Um, and the hijinks of the relationship between um, the boy and the crocodile and Lyle sort of formed the heart of the film there as Josh and 
Lyle developed a strong bond there and he grows in confidence there as well and becomes less less afraid. This is a film about family, friendship, um, and the ties that bind us there. I, I quite enjoyed it there. I must admit, though, while I was at, at the session I was at today, quite a few parents were sort of spending more time watching their mobile phones than who were watching the film. Oh, Greg, that just, sorry, that annoys the bejesus. I mean, what, what I mean, the, the lights in the, didn't that distract you? It did a little bit, but what, what can you do? No. It, it's, it's, it was it's a fairly, a, crowded, fairly crowded cinema too. It's a modern yeah. way of anyway, watching I like, I like the film, I thought, and, and look, even though the Crocodile Lyle, the CGI, is a little bit fake, he was an interesting character. I quite enjoyed him. Yeah, I thought he. I thought it was a lot of fun. No question about that. I mean, you know, let, let's be honest. The um, Lyle's interactions with Josh and his parents, I mean, that include dumpster diving and cooking and wrestling. I, I thought they were they were particularly noteworthy. A, a few flat patches, a few few flatter patches, though. Greg, did you not think that? A little bit, but also a bit of slapstick humour there. And some of it towards the end remind me of a little film film we saw earlier this year, Clifford the Giant Red Dog. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, and the Mr. Grubbs character remind me of the, another film we're going to talk about shortly. The Tom Hanks character in um, A Man Called Otto, a, a curmudgeon who's sort of strict on rules around the housing area. Very, very strict on rules. Yeah, I, yeah. look, I thought Crocodile really excelled when it descended into mayhem. Peter, D- did you not? Uh, yes, to, to some extent. I must admit, I was mildly disappointed by this film. I expected it to be much more really? over the over the top than it was because it's definitely pitched uh, at children uh, and uh, I think even children will find it perhaps uh, not as uh, as enticing as uh, to some extent maybe Puss in Boots. The problem I and, had and with you, the... Yeah, that's the contrary, contrary view that I gave you a few minutes ago because the, the three youngsters I referenced, they absolutely adored Lyle, Lyle Crocodile and would gladly see it again. They would not with the the other movie. Mm. The problem I have with this film is it's got template writing uh, all over it. It's written in a very predictable and obvious sort of way. And, in fact, it doesn't go far enough with the crocodile character. It's interesting the way that they used motion capture so that the actors were interacting with another human being that was then CGI'd into the the crocodile. And, And... I don't think they've gone far enough with it. As uh, Greg mentioned, the two songwriters, uh, they actually won Oscars, of course, for their writing of uh, the songs in La La Land, as well as for Greatest Showman. And yet um, I didn't find the songs particularly well integrated and and the storyline of this uh, mute crocodile with stage fright who suddenly um, develops the ability to sing because, um, to some extent, Javier Bardem and his magic tricks um, sort of helps him and, and, and the young boy. I, I just don't think the whole thing coalesces particularly well for my liking. It's interesting to note there's some Australian money in this film uh, because I noticed in the credits that Vic Screen, uh, the new name for Film Victoria, have put some money into the digital effects in this film. And yet uh, I don't know if it particularly works well for me. Uh, Look, 
uh, overall, it it has some entertainment quality. Yes, and Greg, you're right. It does have connections with uh, Clifford, the big red dog. And I was actually, as I was watching this, I was thinking of the Bugs Bunny cartoon uh, where the the frog, uh, the singing frog, would refuse to sing in public, but would only sing for the uh, the person who was uh, who oh, rescued him. Very good. Well, I mean, I, I'm I wasn't even I wasn't totally convinced about the lip syncing either, Peter. Talking about the the, the music, but I, I did think that tuneful pop songs, uh, courtesy of Sean Mendes, I thought they did hit the mark. And, and some of the biggest laughs come courtesy of that cat Greg, which mm. appears to enjoy Josh's company. That you know the uh, I, I mean the trailer and so forth shows uh, what happens when a crocodile swallows a cat and then spits it out again, doesn't it? Thank you, indeed. And, and I mean, Javier Bardem, he amps up his portrayal of the entertainer who's happy to break all the rules. One of the finest moments in this picture is when Lyle wins over Mrs Prim and she lets down her guard. I thought that was a lovely little scene. Uh, And and Wu plays that up beautifully. So And and Winslow Fegley really readily conveys Josh's character shift that uh, takes place during the course of the film. Directed by Josh Gordon and Will Speck, they were responsible for Office Christmas Party. I thought it was easy on the eyes and ears. I I do believe it deserves to attract an appreciative young audience, and I I dare say it will. So it's it's a perfect holiday film, even if you wanted it to be even further over the top uh, there, Peter. What what would you give it out of 10, Greg? I'll I'll give it 6 out of 10. Six out of ten, okay. Which is a, yeah, I wouldn't say that's a a, a huge mark. No, so, that's, okay, it's entertaining up to a point. Okay, and what about you, Peter? I found it interesting that Javier Bardem had to learn to sing and dance to fulfil his role in in this film. I thought that was the most interesting part of uh, the film. <laughs> Look, uh, I didn't mind it. Um, I, I just felt it didn't quite completely work for me as a storyline or as a script. So actually I also gave it six out of ten. And, and I'm, I'm giving it a higher mark. I, I gave uh, the the nursery story that we spoke about, uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, I gave that seven. I'll give this one seven and a half, all right, seven and a half out of ten. So, okay, they're two family movies, one which we saw the Swedish version of this, the English language version is a man called Otto with Tom Hanks. And it's M rated, runs for two hours and six minutes. And we're talking about uh, this man named Otto. His surname is Anderson. So Otto Anderson. And uh, he seems like anything but a nice man. He, He likes to keep to himself. He's curt to the point of rudeness. He's actually known for it. So as Greg had mentioned, he's a curmudgeon. He's effectively pushed out of his engineering job and he, busies himself preparing to end it all. And then a lively young Mexican family moves in across the road. Now, I'm not sure what you It's sort of like a, it's a gated community where the houses all join together. So I'm not sure what, is there a word, there must be a word for that, but I can't think of it, where, where you've got houses one after another all joined together in a gated community. Do either of you gentlemen know what, what that is called? Is there, there a terminology for it? A single word, no? I can't okay. think of one, no. Okay. Well, you've got Marisol uh, and Tommy. They're the, the husband and wife in this Mexican family. They've got a couple of young daughters, and Marisol is pregnant with her third child. She can't drive. She She's never learned to do so. And 
uh, his handyman skills leave a lot to be desired. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're a fine bunch. So they, they frequently call upon, uh, shall we say, less than gracious Otto for help. Marisol can't understand then why Otto is so brusque all the time. And he also has little time or patience for his other neighbours in, uh, I'll call it a closed estate, all right, Peter? So he, he has little time or patience for his other neighbours in that environment uh, where, where they all live. In particular, for many years, he's been feuding with his former friend Reuben and Reuben's friend Anita. Um, in fact, it's Reuben's wife, isn't it, Anita? Uh, so, yeah, so basically this feud has been going on and, and Reuben is now wheelchair-bound, unfortunately, unable to speak with barely any movement and uh, yet Otto remains unrepentant about the, the fact that their friendship is no longer. As this movie unfolds, we learn that six months ago, the love of Otto's life, whose name was Sonia, played by Rachel Keller, passed away at the age of 63. And the wound that that left is, well, it's a gaping hole. And he feels that there's really nothing left to live for. So through the course of the motion picture, we, we see how they met, how their relationship developed, what happened along the way. These snippets are drip-fed to us as Otto fights an ongoing battle with the realtor responsible for this estate. And he comes and goes and uh, he, he always leaves the gate open and uh, and he drives on the wrong side of the road and uh, none of this Otto puts up with, right, sort of chases the car and so on. And any car, in fact, any delivery van that comes in or uh, whatever goes, whatever doesn't go 100% his way, if you put the, the wrong rubbish in the wrong bins, oh, boy, will Otto come down hard on you. So this movie, A Man Called Otto, is filled with warmth and humour and pathos, and it's based on the number one New York Times bestseller, A Man Called Oove, by Frederick Backman, and, of course, a film of the same name by Harness Holm. When did we see that, Peter? Did you, or Greg, do you know when we saw... 2015. I, I, that was a lovely movie. I really enjoyed it. And the screenplay for this one is by David McGee, Life of Pi, with direction from Mark Foster, who was responsible for Christopher Robin. I, my understanding is that basically uh, what happened was that Tom Hanks and his wife Rita Wilson saw the Swedish movie and then bought the rights to it. Is that your understanding as well, Peter? I think that's what happened, yes. Mm. And I understand why. Uh, did you enjoy it as much as I did? Uh, to some extent I did. I thought it was a, a good feel-good film, um, not quite as dark as the uh, original Swedish, although Swedish was also amusing but uh, had much darker comedy attached to it. Um, I I don't know why Americans have this need, though, to remake uh, excellent Oscar-nominated films because that's Man Called Ove was originally uh, uh, received uh, two Oscar nominations. Why they feel the need to remake it uh, in English um, unless you do something different or unusual or clever with it. And uh, none of the above for this one. It's good. It's okay. It's old-fashioned entertainment. It's melancholy. It's sentimental. Um, it, and it works quite well uh, as a standalone own film but i still preferred the original but the, but it's interesting you say that because i was thinking of the movie the girl with the dragon tattoo now 
once again, you had a European version and you had an American version, and both of them worked very, very well. And I think both of these will work very well. And there's no reason that, because you have got, unlike you who see so much, and, and I suppose all of us as reviewers do, and we often see European films and subtitles, that isn't the case with a lot of people who choose not to go and see movies that are not in English. So this is going to introduce the character to a new audience, and that's a good thing, surely. Well, to some extent it is. I mean, it's nice to broaden the audience, and uh, yes. especially for English-speaking audiences. Uh, but I don't know. I, I always prefer remakes or or reconstituting stories that were made in another language in a different sort of vein. And I agree with you with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The English-language version was pretty good, and yet it was the original that really was the most inspirational. Oh, no, but it's it's kind of often the case. and. Some things translate. Bear in mind that European sensibilities are not American sensibilities and, and, and never the twain shall meet. That doesn't mean that one's bad or, you know, one, one couldn't be better and so on. But I think you've got to be cognizant of the audience that's watching a movie. And if this is primarily made with a, an English language market in mind, uh, I think they've done a very good job, Greg. What did you think? Oh, okay, up to a point there. It, as Peter said, this is a lot more smelchy and sentimental than the Swedish original, which had a bit of a darker edge to it as well. Um, I thought Tom Hanks was reasonably well cast here as the grouchy Otto, whose life is slowly changed by that arrival of that young family across the road and, most unexpectedly, by a cat that becomes um, attached to him here. Um, and it slowly peels away um, the layers to reveal his sad backstory, which makes you understand more about Otto and why he is the way he is. And you can relate to the character, his sense of loss and melancholy um, and what drives him there. And his change, I thought, was quite believable. Um, and as you said, the film misses a touch of warmth and humour and pathos there. Um, it's got gen gentle touch of humour there. Um, and it's nicely directed by Mark Forster, who's a bit of a journeyman director, who's directed a diverse range of films from Bond to Finding Neverland, um, but he never really leaves his own idiosyncratic mark on, it, on the films he directs. So he's a bit of a bland director who handles a diverse range of topics and subject matter, always competently made. Um, but, yeah, I think I preferred the, the Swedish original to um, this earnest, well-made American production. Well, I mean, it's inevitable that because we've all seen both versions that you do reflect back upon it. I just judge this, though, as a movie, as a standalone film, and I thought it was beautifully constructed and, and orchestrated. It's a feel-good picture about a man who's hurting, who, against expectations, gets a second chance. I thought the performances were delightful. I thought that Hanks was perfectly at home as this curmudgeon and, and he revels as the grump, and, and his interrelationship with the other actors works a treat, as done as does his uh, tentative relationship with a stray cat, uh, which, uh, there we go, here's that cat again. Uh, so, I mean, Rachel Keller, well, she comes across as this kind, considerate and caring person, Sonia, and uh, who, who sort of really gave meaning and purpose to Otto's life. And then... One of the treats in this picture is Mariana Trevino. 
she brings joie de vivre and feistiness to her role as the quick-witted Marisol, the 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 uh, the ruler of the roost in the Mexican family, quite a revelation. And Manuel Garcia Ralflo uh, channels his inner child as her husband Tommy. A- around them, though, the the other neighbourhood characters also endear themselves to the audience. They include Cameron Britton, who brings more humour into play as a man who believes in exaggerated exercise. Uh, who is it? Um, John Cleese who did the the silly walks and stuff like that. It it sort of reminded me of that. Um, if you exaggerate your movement of your legs upwards, uh, do you ex- do you exude um, more energy? Well, Greg, I'm here to tell you, and you are a regular walker. Uh, there was a study done. Uh, seriously, I heard an interview with a man who loved Monty Python, and he studied the the art of walking the way that John Cleese did, and found that it actually elevates your heartbeat more if you walk that way than if you walk in a traditional fashion such that you and I do. There you go. I can tell you right off the bat, Alex, I'm not walking along South Bank like John Cleese. (laughs) I'm very disappointed, Greg. I mean, I think the video cameras would be on you and the the men in the white coats would be there to take you away. I'd say they wouldn't be far away. But I must admit, Tom Hanks' performance here was a lot better than his recent turn as um, Colonel Tom Tom Parker in Elvis there, where I thought his accent and some of his mannerisms were a bit strange. But here he was a lot more committed to the role, I thought. Oh, look, I didn't didn't mind mind him, you know, going over the top with that, but I thought, yeah, this this was perfectly in his wheelhouse. Uh, Look, it's a story... A man called Otto that draws you in from the get-go and uh, and holds you tight, uh, and that that's what it it wants to do. It makes for delightful viewing. I I really really enjoyed it. Uh, my wife and I, you know, had big broad smiles on our faces afterwards, and I, I think that's what this movie does. It, it I think there'll be a lot of people that really love it. I I, I think that it'll be one of the popular fancies over the. Uh, the, the festive season. That that's my opinion of it. Let's get your scores, which I dare say will be lower than mine. Uh, Greg, what's your score for a man called Otto? Oh, man named Otto, isn't it? Uh, six and a half. Cool. Cool. Is it a man? I get called and named, missed up. Uh, and it, it's called Otto. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Six and a half. Okay. Okay, and for me, uh, look, uh, two comments. First of all, this film and La La Crocodile demonstrate diversity in casting. That I want to remark upon. And secondly, this American version of Man Called Otto is 10 minutes longer than the Swedish original. It's interesting how you talk about length of films at times. This one is longer than the original Swedish. (laughs) Anyway, that's just as as an aside. did Did that worry you? Not me, but I thought you might want to remark on that. Oh, well, but, no, but the funny thing is that uh, bear in mind that I liked Avatar and it was three hours and 12 minutes. So yeah. I Oh, you're the speaking, one. <laughs> yes, I am the one. Uh, so generally speaking, I prefer a nice tight 90 minute. But if the movie sustains my interest like this one did, it didn't in any way trouble me. So I, there I, we I go. Was, I, I think I'm with Peter in that on um, Avatar, Way of the Water. I thought. Um, there were some flat patches in there. I liked the last 40 minutes of it um, when all the action sequences, but I thought there was too much navel-gazing environmental messages that slowed the pacing down um, for much of the first half of the film. Okay. Well, all right. So uh, what what score uh, are we giving this movie? 
Ah, I give uh, Man Called Otto seven out of ten. You gave it seven, and Greg again? Six and a half. Yeah, and I'm giving it eight and a half. So there you go. This is this is this will be in my list of the you know top twenty movies of twenty twenty three. I'm I'm telling you that at this early stage, I'll be very interested to see how it goes in, at the box office because I, I think it deserves to do it particularly well. It, it's um it's up there with the Lost King as one of these movies that I think a lot of people are going to enjoy, and I think this is going to be even more popular. That that's you know I think it's got it's got that sort of populist appeal to it. So. That's the that that's the first three movies. Another one that's on Netflix, which I wanted to speak about, and I'm with Peter Krauss and Gregory King, and I, I, we should acknowledge our partners in crime who've been with us for quite some time in Jackie Hamilton and also Dave Griffiths, and of course last week we were joined by Fred Levitt. So um, I mean it's a it's a cavalcade of stars, and we've only got two others there today, but I'm sure during the course of 2023, we'll rope the others back in again, hopefully very, very soon. Now, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. And you you go back to, uh, I think it was 2019, and you had this comic crime drama, Knives Out. That really, it was a surprise, it was a delight, and I suppose given how well it it did, it's not such a surprise that a sequel was all but a foregone conclusion. So Netflix subsequently bought the rights to two sequels and now Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, the first of them, is out and it does not disappoint. Lockdown has taken its toll on famed detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, and then he has the elixir that he's been looking for an invitation to attend a whodunit party on a private Greek island owned by a tech billionaire called, My- called Miles Bron, played by Edward Norton. And he is a notorious lover of puzzles, Miles Bron. Fittingly, the invitation to this party comes in the form of a series of complex puzzles inside a wooden box. And it's also gone out to Blong's closest friends not just to the detective. And these include the head scientist from Bronze Company, Lionel Toussaint, played by Leslie Odom Jr., and the Connecticut governor, Claire DeBella, played by Catherine Hahn. There's a colourful fashion designer, Bertie J. that's Kate Hudson, and men's rights streamer, Duke Cody, Dave Batista. Also attending is uh, by Bertie's assistant, Peg, Jessica Henwick, and Duke's girlfriend, Whiskey, Madeline Klein. And putting in a shock appearance is Bron's estranged former business partner, Cassandra, otherwise known as Andy Brand, Janelle Monet. Now, it turns out that both Andy and the detective weren't actually officially invited by Bron, but both are allowed to remain on the exclusive island with the others that I've already spoken about. And the plan is for a murder mystery game Right, so it quickly it all becomes all too real. Not all is bonhomie. In fact, far from it. And while facing much opposition, Bron is ploughing ahead with plans for a very dangerous hydrogen-based alternative fuel. His so-called friends all had their own agendas and reservations, while Bron's use of language, well, is decidedly questionable. And then there's the question of the that shady split between Bron and Andy. 
Now, the film's title, Glass Onion, refers to something that is hidden in plain sight. That's all I want to say about it. The writer-director, Rian Johnson, who was also responsible for the first instalment, chose glass because it is transparent, okay, so as in the title. So for billionaire Bron, money is no object. He's even taken possession of the Mona Lisa, and much of the action takes place under the dome at his mansion, which, well, it looks like, what does it look like? Uh, yes, you think about the title. So I, I enjoyed the twists and turns in this as much as I did the, the first one. I, I really did. I, I, it's, it's got an even larger big-name cast, and most of the characters here are compromised, which means they have the motive to execute dirty deeds. Uh, it's, it's very much the modern form of the Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot-like mystery. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what uh, Glass Onion is all about, Gregory King, isn't it? It is a little bit. I didn't enjoy this as much as I did the first film, though. I thought that had a, a starrier cast to start with um, and a lot more twists and turns. Here's a, here it seems that Ryan Johnson seems to be repeating some of the um, beats of the first film there with the way it flashes back at key points to re-explore the unfolding of the action there and explaining things. Um, I like the way we've got a bit more depth about um, Daniel Craig's character there, including a couple of flashbacks to his life during lockdown there. There's a couple of great little cameos here, including one from Hugh Grant, which is, I thought, quite amusing there. And I, I thought the production design was fantastic there, the way it created Bronze um, Mansion on the on the island there. And um, Kate Hudson is getting some really in in interesting roles at the moment. She's doing some incredibly interesting work there. But I just found this one a little bit too much repeating some of the um, key beats of the first film for me. It didn't quite impress me as much as the first film in the Knives Out um, mm -hmm. franchise. Can I understand that? Well, look, I thought you know, Daniel Cray continues to revel in the adulation that comes with being a famous and fated PI. He he plays that up. He he has fun in the role, Peter, doesn't he? He he does. Uh, in fact, I read somewhere that Ryan Johnson wanted to give him a different accent. But uh, uh, anyway, that's another story. Look, as I was watching this at the very start of the film, and each character is introduced to us. I had a memory flashback of a film that Stephen Sondheim wrote in 1973 called The Last of Sheila, oh, yeah. which was a, a terrific uh, mis uh, murder mystery set on a boat. And because of that, I thought, now, each character has a significance and will be lined up in a particular way, which is what happened in The Last of Sheila. And that was confirmed to me when I saw Stephen Sondheim have a small role in the film on a Zoom screen with Angela Lansbury, who, of course, he mm -hmm. partnered with on so many musicals for, for so long. And, of course, that was her last film. So... Look, there, there's some clever plotting and some good ideas in this film. I did, uh, I do agree with you, Greg, that I thought it didn't have the same resonance as the first Knives Out film. In fact, Ryan Johnson hated uh, that uh, Glass Onion was also called Knives Out, uh, almost part two. He didn't want Knives Out to be in the title at all in the Glass Onion because he wanted it to be a standalone film. And yet, of course, now comparisons are going to be made uh, more obviously because of the Knives Out uh, titling. Look, it's a good cast. 
just it's it's a, a well constructed story. I did feel that it overstayed its welcome for me, um, and so by the time we get to the uh, the revelations, if you like to put it that way, and the last of Sheila, so to speak, as I've been using that as the as the template, uh, I I was uh, I I didn't find it as interesting and as compelling as the first Knives Out film. So look, it's well produced. It's very well shot. Um, it, it just doesn't have that same level of excitement and resonance that the first film had. Greg, did you also find the two hours, 20 minutes wearing? Um, didn't bother me. Didn't bother you. Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I didn't mind it particularly, although I thought, yeah, I thought it was reasonably long. Uh, I mean, all the key characters capitalise upon the power they have, where, whether that be through lip or through brawn. And you've referenced a couple of cameos. There, there certainly are some noteworthy ones, including one from former world number one tennis player Serena Williams. And it's To me, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery is a rather deliciously woven tale of suspense and surprise, and, and picking its narrative arc is damn near impossible un, unless you're Benoit Blanc. So, I mean, I think it, it continues the tradition where, where we can await the next one. I'm not sure when part three, if, we, if it's going to have the same sort of knives out title is coming out, but um, it was bought for good reason. I think it'll do it, do well for Netflix and uh, that's where you can see it. So, I mean, more and more you've got movies that this was only out in the cinemas. I, I saw it uh, at the Classic in Elstonwick. It, it's only out for a week or two and then then it goes on to Netflix and that's that's the nature of the, what they're doing these days. So I, I'm giving it an eight out of ten. What about you, Peter? Uh, I I didn't mind it. Uh, seven out of ten. And Gregory King. Um, I'm seven out of ten as well. Okay. Well, there we go. So Bonhomie and all of those good things. So what we've we've talked about four movies. I want to mention. I saw the. I was very fortunate to see the opening night of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and the biggest, most contentious choice of actor in this one is somebody who isn't an actor and that was Shane Crawford and there were some rather nasty things said about him I, I thought it was far too nasty and he's obviously not somebody who is used to singing for his supper literally uh, whereas all the other characters were and of course he's got a really positive presence on you know in his television appearances and and uh, he's somebody who's who's uh, transposed his life after after football to be quite the entertainer. So, you know, he, he's been somebody who has played Pharaoh since the show opened. And, uh, in fact, the t today is the last performance by somebody who's taken his place. This was prearranged. There are some pre-existing uh, commitments that Shane Crawford had uh, over for, for a week. And stepping into the role of Pharaoh in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat is none other than the man who played Edna Turnblad in Hairspray more than a decade ago, and his name is Trevor Ashley. Did you ever see that production, Greg, Hairspray, or, or not in 2011? I only saw the movie. I've only seen the two movies from John Waters. Oh, okay. Well, but he was terrific. He was absolutely terrific in that. And in, in this version of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, as he's called upon in the script, he, he mimics Elvis in Las Vegas, which is, of course, what Shane Crawford does as well. So – just to let you know, Shane Crawford will not be playing the role of Pharaoh in Sydney because this 
production, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, opened in Melbourne, directly from the West End in London, and it is going to finish up on the 8th of January here, and then it opens at the Capitol Theatre in Sydney on the 11th of February. And that's when Trevor Ashley will play Pharaoh. So this is sort of a a bit of a taste of what what is to come for him. So anyway, he he played he plays he played the role from the twenty seventh of December till the first of January, and Shane Crawford returns from the fourth of January, so a few days time to see out the Melbourne season uh, in that last week, finishing on the eighth. The timber in Ashley's voice really impressive, and and he can hold a tune. Pharaoh only appears for the first time near the start of the second act. And when he does, he's unforgettable because it's with a great deal of handfare and uh, very, very colourful sort of Egyptian gold uh, right over the stage. In terms of the the look and feel of the the piece, it's perfect. And the audience gives him a rousing reception. Now, on his opening night, Ashley's movements, though, were rather stiff. Now, I dare say part of that was due to nervousness, which you can understand, not to overlook the fact that dancing is not his strong suit. And and yet the choreography in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat and the dancing are phenomenal overall. Still, Ashley has a really strong stage presence and, and reappears with a well-received solo number in the encore. So he does a very good job and he's, in terms of the singing and and. He's got great depth to that voice of his. As far as the show itself is concerned, this new reimagined production is a delightful, fun, engaging and dynamic family musical. And I saw lots of young children in the audience, which is a good sign. Wonderfully directed by Lawrence Connor, based on the biblical character Joseph, uh, seen as his father, Jacob's favourite son, He's gifted this beautiful Technicolor coat by his dad and that enrages his 11 siblings who sell him into slavery. While serving an Egyptian noble called Potiphar, Joseph attracts the interest of Potiphar's wife. But after refusing her advances, he ends up being imprisoned. And with an ability to interpret dreams, which he does, he's brought before Pharaoh who challenges Joseph to decipher his dreams. And that Joseph does, and he soon finds himself as Pharaoh's trusted right-hand man. Meanwhile, Joseph's long-lost family, the ones that sold him into slavery, has fallen on hard times. And without realising who he is, they turn to him for help. By then, he is Pharaoh's number two. So he's dressed decidedly differently from when they last saw him. More so. More than half a century after it was conceived and subsequently expanded, the music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, lyrics from Tim Rice, remain ear-pleasing. And this musical, more as, as a magical cartoon-like quality about it, it, it's got more musical styles than I could recall seeing in any other big stage musical. And I, I mean that everything from pop and rock to country and western, calypso, yeah, and more. Musical direction, Peter Rutherford, musical supervision, John Rigby, sound design, Gareth Owen, add tap dancing and cheerleading to a truly diverse repertoire. And this highlights why I say that there's more musical styles here than I've seen in any other big stage musical production. Dance and athleticism, they're key components of the musical. And Joanne M. Hunter's 
choreography, which I've referenced earlier. I, I found that really superb. Costume is colourful. The coat, for example, that Joseph receives from his dad is is a magnificent multi-hued creation. I, I, I would love to have that. And, and the sets are spectacular. In fact, all is suitably showy thanks to the efforts of the set and costume designer Morgan Large. Ben Cracknell's lighting design, that certainly deserves a mention as well. That's really creative and uh, captivating. As the narrator of the piece also appears in various guises, I thought that Paulini was fantastic, poised and sassy. And, you know, seeing her for the second time, boy, what a great talent she is. And, and with the most mellifluous voice, Ewan Fistrovic Doidge, what a pleasure to listen to him and, and he's triumphant as Joseph. You've got eight children in the role. That, that I think there's three sets of children that sort of uh, obviously you can't exploit children with slave labour. Uh, as as this uh, the theme of uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dream talks about, so they they uh, swap them over, um, and they they really are a talented bunch, and they they delight the the audience every time they uh, appear. There's widespread acclamation. So overall, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, highly imaginative, memorable, very satisfying production, much to get excited about. And as I mentioned, it's finishing on the 8th of January. Tonight, uh, today's the last day that you get the chance to see uh, a man that you will be able to see in Sydney in the role, Trevor Ashley as Pharaoh. But you can, uh, if you don't see it today, you can see in the next few days, Shane Crawford. So, you know, you better get onto it very quickly because Shane and the Melbourne production of Joseph finishes on the 8th of January before reopening at the Capitol in Sydney, Capitol OL Theatre in Sydney on the 11th of February. So that's Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And with that, gentlemen, I say thank you to both of you and uh, and uh, blessings for a very, very comfortable and happy and healthy New Year to you, Peter, and to you, Gregory, and hopefully we'll be talking a lot more about film and theatre and a little bit of football, Greg, during uh, the ensuing uh, 12 months. So we can we can start building up our bank of uh, of memories and uh, and building up towards the the best and worst films of 2023. Farewell to all. Catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment. Mm-hmm.